Ecclesiastes chapter 3, as Luke had read for us a few minutes ago. If you're a guest here this morning, or maybe a regular attender, and you maybe forgot your Bible in the car, or don't have the Bible on an electronic device, our ushers would like to offer you one to follow along this morning. You can lift your hand, and uh, they'll find you. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and 4 is going to present for us some pretty tall, thick weeds to walk through together. So all that simply means is this could be difficult to understand, so we're trying to take the depth of it and summarize the depth of these two chapters in the most simple yet hopefully uh, profound ways so all of us can understand. There's people in our midst that have uh, been saved literally for days, uh, some weeks, some months, and some decades. Um, and by God's grace, that's the way it will always be here at our church. And all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, learning, for correction, for reproof, for instruction, that all of us might be prepared to understand what it means to live godly lives. And uh, these two chapters, though there will be some tall and thick weeds to work through together, uh, there's some tremendous truth here that the Holy Spirit has that can really settle our hearts uh, in, in Christ Jesus as we work through uh, these things together. We divided chapter 3, for those of you who are guests, a couple weeks ago, into three different sections. I'd like to remind you what those three sections are briefly if you're a note taker uh, or even if you're just a, a person with an excellent uh, memory. Uh, we, we talked about God's providence in the natural rhythms of our life. God inhabits eternity. God's not bound by time. thousand years is as one day to him and one day a thousand years and we discuss the providence of God in our daily activities in our natural rhythms of life as we saw in verses 2 through 8 we moved on to discuss a proper perspective as we live and journey and persevere through the natural rhythms of life God's providence and then what would a biblical perspective be as we walk through these natural rhythms of life is fallen but yet in Christ redeemed people what are some things we need to realize and and understand as we continue to realize ourselves as a small short story that has been beautifully ordained and crafted by God's good hand in light of God's big picture story we concluded that section by just reminding us as we understand the book of Ecclesiastes, we need to pray ourselves small and pray God very big in our lives. And that's the only way to keep our spiritual wit about us, really our spiritual sanity about us. Then we began to journey into our third uh, part of this chapter, and we titled that third part, the plain truth regarding the natural rhythms of life. The plain truth. So providence, perspective, and plain truth. And we, 
would like to present to you a handful, uh, five in particular, uh, truths or principles that are plain in their truth to help govern our thinking and govern our hearts as we walk through these natural rhythms of life together. And as, again, Luke already read for us, um, we'll get to verses 16 to the end of the chapter in just a bit, but picking, where, picking up where we left off last time together, we'll highlight a couple things and then move on into verse number 16. Uh, the first of five plain truths that we'd like to see is found in verse 11, and it's simply this. In our passion to know everything, we can trust God that he does know everything in his divine big picture. And he has a beautiful plan for our lives. What did we read last time we were together in verse 11? He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has set eternity in the desire in the heart of a man. All that simply means in the Hebrew language is simply this. He's given us the desire to know everything about life and eternity. And he knew that we as finite and yet fallen creatures would never be able to grasp all that we desired to know. So it's somewhat paradoxical here. God sets eternity in the heart of every man. And all that simply means is he gives us a desire to know everything about life and eternity. And yet he knows because we're created, we're finite, and he's infinite, and we're not only created, but we're fallen, we will never be able to completely understand matters of life and eternity. But God has made everything appropriate in its time. And my friends, this is, this is very, very, very essential to us maintaining spiritual sanity in our own environment. This helps us understand why bad things happen to good people. This helps us to understand why it seems like the justice of God is lingering way too long in relationship to the sinful activity of some these things that we desire to know, that we desire really to control because we desire to know them, we just have to entrust ourselves, as we mentioned last week, from two weeks ago from 1 Peter 4.19, entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while we continue to do good things. While God has set this desire in our hearts that we can never know, he fully knows. He fully knows. And as 1 Peter 5 says, we humble ourselves under his mighty hand that he would exalt us in due time. What do we learn from verses 12 to 15 we highlighted a bit last time we were together? We mentioned that we need to just control what we can control. We can't control it all, so control what you can control. Solomon says, I know that there is nothing for better than man can do than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in his labor. It is the gift from God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should what? Fear. That men should fear him. 
Verse 15 we'll discuss in just a little bit. It ends up being really like a fulcrum that connects for us uh, the first 14 verses and verses 16 to the end of the chapter. It says, that which has been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what is passed by. But before we get to that verse, let's just remember that we need to, we're commanded here to control what we can control. What can we do? We can do a handful of really good things, five to be particular. Underneath verses 12 to 15, you can choose to be joyful. Rejoice in the good things that God has given you. That's a choice, isn't it? 1 Peter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, This is the will of God that you be found a thankful people, choosing to be a joyful, thankful person is a spiritual discipline as you're governed by the Spirit of God. If we all look at the reality of our lives, there is certainly much more substantive good than there is evil. Because of our fallen nature, that which happens to us that is, in, that is evil or that which is in us because we're fallen is short-lived, but because we're fallen has immense consequence in our life, doesn't it? It seems like when something dark happens to us or something dark arises within us, it seems to consume who we are. And it can be just a moment or a series of moments within a brief period of our life. But when you look at the whole scope of our life, there is certainly much good that God's gifted us with. Would you agree? This is why Solomon, who's at the end of his life, now walking with the Lord, is able to say, you know what? There's been much violence and grief upon my life and within my own soul. But I choose to rejoice in whatsoever things are true. What's true for every one of us every day? We wake up, we breathe, we eat. We may be married. We may have a family that loves us. We may have a job. We may have been provided food, clothing, and shelter. We have the opportunity for Christian fellowship, Christian discipleship. We enjoy the sun as redeemed people as unredeemed people do. We enjoy the benefits of the rain. Right? I was going around my property yesterday. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I love to take pictures of flowers. And uh, we have these lilies on the side of our house that are just stunning. And uh, I was going around taking pictures. If you want to see them, I'll show you. They're orange lilies. They're orange lilies. And I can just stand there and I just, I, yeah, just like, wow. Right? And we have these white lilies, and we have these pink and white lilies that my wife actually had in our wedding. And we found them to plant them in our backyard. So every year I'm reminding what a great wife I have and what a great blessing she is to my life. And we have pink roses and red roses, and we have these little yellow buttercupy things, and, and we have these purple, purple, I call them our purple fireworks flowers. And I just go around and I just take pictures of those and I thank God for those, that beauty in my life. That, and, I, and, I, and I thank God for so many different things. We have to choose to rejoice. Amen. 
Because I'm telling you, it is within the capability of our fallen nature to be drowned by wickedness that's been done to us or adversity that's even within us. Would you agree? Our fallen nature loves to wallow in grief and the consequence of grief. So that's why he says here, if we're going to truly trust God, we've got to choose to rejoice And then he says here, we have to choose to do good things. One of the activities of depressed people is inactivity. Solomon says here, if we're going to make sense out of life as redeemed people, we've got to stay busy about good things. It is a spiritual discipline of life. We won't survive in spiritual sanity if we're not rejoicing and choosing to rejoice and choosing to be about good things. I find it very interesting here in the same context, the Hebrew language says that God is good and he is constantly about supporting the good activity of people, of his own people. Stay busy with good things. Your own Bible reading, your own prayer, loving of your spouse, the loving of your family. Right? Faithfulness to worship. Faithfulness to service in the local church. Faithfulness in praying for the lost in our community to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Praying that you would be instrumental in seeing that come to fruition in your own life. Be busy about being light at work, light in your neighborhood. Be busy about good things because our nature is prone to depression if we're not busy about good things. Idle time is truly the devil's playground. Be busy about good things. Every man who eats and drinks is to see the good of his labor. Enjoy a good, juicy burger as often as you can. Right? If your job affords you to buy a good porterhouse steak, love it. If you love surf and turf, get some shrimp alongside that porterhouse steak. If you love a big whopping baked potato or sweet potato next to it, do it. If you love to drive a Harley and you can afford it and not make other financial obligations in your life that are biblical expendable, go get a Harley and ride it. Enjoy it. Not all of us can do that. I can't. Some of you can. And when I see you riding your motorcycles, I'm like, cool. That's awesome. That's good. Enjoy the fruit of your labor. This is not an option, my friends. Some of us were raised in a Christianity where we we were taught to feel bad about enjoying some of these things. We were taught almost kind of like this mystical aestheticism would, and depriving us ourselves of some of these things would actually draw us closer to God in some kind of spooky way, and it doesn't. Solomon says, rejoice in the fruit of your labor. Enjoy it. I can remember the nearings, the sweet sweet family in our church and 
Mr. Nearing's long home with the Lord. And I can remember when I was coming up through high school, uh, they were burdened that I would have a car to get to work and to get to school. So they had an old, I think it was a 1976 green Oldsmobile. Do you remember that car, Mrs. Nearing? And they gave me that car. And I was thrilled. As a 16-year-old kid, I had a car. Are you kidding me? This car served my needs faithfully for several years, all the way until I finished high school. And I actually was able to sell that car for $300 with no brakes on it <laughs> and put it towards my, my college education. Right? When they gave me that car, Mr. Nearing said to me, he said, he said, Tim, this isn't much. He said, it's got a hole in the floorboard. He said, there's a mat that covers the hole that your feet are going to be over. He said, when it snows and when it rains, your feet are going to get wet, right? So I'd been used to watching the Flintstones growing up. So Bam Bam, and you know, it was not Bam Bam, but you know, Fred, was it Fred? And who was, who was the Barney, right? Rubble, right? Right, they just put their feet through the bottom of the floor. And I said, I could just run to, to school. That's no problem. So many times during the winter, I would show up to school and my feet would be soaking wet, but I had a car. <laughs> I had a car. And I would look around at other kids that were driving cars and, and they were a lot nicer than that one. But quite frankly, it never occurred to me. I just had a car. <laughs> I was so thankful. So thankful. And verse 14 is a tremendous reminder to us that everything that God does will remain forever. Whatever detail he crafts in the short story of my life, it's his handcrafted story. Regardless of the glory or the agony that he allows or permits, it's his handcrafted story. And whether it's glory in my life which really has dominated all of our lives, or the brief agony which may have been extreme in some of our lives, or all of our lives. God's grace compels us to persevere through both and to trust him that in the bigger picture of his sovereignty, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. We get on to verse 15. There's some... Fifth here underneath this particular section of verses 12 to 15, we need to expect something from the Lord. And it's okay to expect it because it's part of the nature of who he is. In other words, God can't help himself but be faithful to his own sovereignty, his own providence, his own governance, his own control of everything. God is a lot of things, right? God is holy. God is love. God is light. God is sovereign. God is, right? God is. And we're going to find out, as I said earlier, that verse 15 really is a fulcrum that takes us from the first 14 verses to the next, where the weeds get a little deeper. And God is in complete, sovereign, detailed control and governance over the natural rhythms of our life, whether they be grief or glory. And grace in Christ underpins our ability to persevere through both. 
And he gives us some mental discipline, some practical discipline things here to make sure that grace is operating in our lives. And that's certainly rejoicing, doing good, remaining thankful, surrendering our heart to a sovereign governance because he doesn't miss a beat. God can't help himself but not miss a beat. And that which has been already and that which will be has already been. He's talking about himself. Remember, because God already lives, he still lives a thousand years ago, and he already lives a thousand years in the future. God inhabits eternity. So there is no surprise to God about anything. But he says something here in the second part of verse 15 that launches us into the 16, verse 16 into the chapter that's sobering. But it's also incredibly comforting for those of us that have been uh, at one point in time in our lives thought to be ruined by somebody else, ravaged by somebody else. Or maybe we've gone through uh, a conflict that we even thought God made a mistake when he allowed it to come into our lives. And some of us, including me, still work out in our own hearts, wondering why or how God did something or did God do something wrong when we know that he didn't, but we're working out in our own minds that reality because we're fallen. Regardless of the agony or the grief that's come into our lives that's been self-inflicted or inflicted upon us, he says something here very encouraging to someone who's walking with God but can be very discouraging for a believer who's not. He says here, for God seeks what is passed by, but let's go on into verse 16 now. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there's wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there's wickedness. Kind of sounds what the prophet said in his day, right? Man began to call evil good and good evil. We don't see any of that in our culture today, do we? So basically what the last part of verse 15 is saying, because God still inhabits history to the detail of your own individual life, he still chases back into history and he doesn't forget violence. He doesn't forget grief. He doesn't forget agony inflicted upon you or your soul. He doesn't forget what's happened in the past. The grammar here is powerful. He is constantly chasing back through history, maintenancing a ledger of ill will towards you. And he's not forgetting because someday, what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Verse 17, I said to myself, Four different times he says something similar in verses 16 to the end of the chapter. Four different times. He's convincing himself. Again, this is a personal discipline that each one of us needs to this morning, by the grace of God, arm ourselves to think and to expect. God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For a time for what? Every detail. Every detail. Every matter for every deed 
is there. So what do we know about verses 16 to 22? There's five major virtues under understanding the plain truth. Five major truths. The first one is understanding our own passion to know everything. We can't, and so we still need to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. Number two, control what you can control. Number three, and then we had five things underneath that. So number three, the third plain truth is simply this. The rejoicing Christian, an author said, will trust the plain truth that for every living creature, there will be a final accounting. We know that the New Testament says it's appointed unto man to die one time, and after that, there will be his individual judgment. We all understand, if you know the Bible, that you're not going to stand in group judgment before the Lord someday. You're going to stand as an individual. So you're really not going to be able to appeal to your next of kin or your best friend or a good coworker and say, hey, could you vouch for me? that my life had more good than bad. Because that's what we're used to doing as, as mere fallen creatures. We want to take that human scale, and as long as we have more good in our lives than bad in our lives, then God needs to accept us. And then we looked at the Bible, and we find out that God doesn't accept us based on our good deeds. Amen. He doesn't accept us, certainly on our bad deeds. Or which one outweighs the other? We know from our Bibles that we're only accepted or acceptable to God because we own his perfection, which is his son, Jesus. So Solomon says here, to maintenance your spiritual sanity, here's a plain truth. Understand the righteous and the wicked are all going to have individual judgment someday, and there's not going to be a detail ever forgotten by their creator. So why does that bring comfort for someone who's walking with, the God, with God? Well, well, if you know Jesus and he's going to judge you for all your deeds, then basically he's going to judge you in Jesus. And Jesus had no poor deeds. So you're going to be okay if you're born again. But if you stand before God, have an intellectual knowledge of Jesus, but never surrendering your heart to him, you're going to stand before him not as savior, but as judge. And he will have a ledger an omniscient, comprehensive ledger of every dark deed that you've either thought, spoken, or done. Thousands of transgressions that you yourself could not even remember, Jesus chases back through history, and he won't forget, not one. But for the believer, Solomon's saying, hey, look, judgment day, is going to be okay for the righteous because you're going to be judged in Christ. And for everyone who's hurt you, for everyone who's hurt you, apart from Jesus Christ, they'll have a, they'll have a judgment day too. And it will be more concise, more real, and divinely tragic for that person than anything you could ever imagine. What does Paul say in Romans? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. And remember, God's not bound by time. 
So the 72 years, which is the average lifespan of someone in the Northeast Ohio area, is but a vapor to him. Eternity is a long time. And judgment is coming for those who are without Jesus Christ. So the rejoicing Christian will trust the plain truth that for every living creature there will be a final accounting. God is not slow to justice. We know that. Ian Provan in his writing on Ecclesiastes said this, it should not be the thought that God's inactivity in respect to wickedness signifies a concession of sovereignty to wickedness over the places in which it is found. In those very places, God will, at the right time, bring justice. God's patience with wickedness is not a concession of his sovereignty. God's not forgetting. He will bring justice. We've all been accustomed to, to planned justice in our lifetimes. Court dates, sentencing, sentencing, sentencing dates, meeting with the principal in the school office maybe, or just wait till the next election and we'll really show them. We evaluate the integrity of justice within our own time frame and also according to, at times, our own broken expectations. The justice in our world is increasingly being replaced by wickedness, as Solomon says it was so in his day. And in mere living, righteousness is being replaced by wickedness. And even though we see these gradually occurring, as God's image bearers, people still expect justice to have its way. But because we are fallen and because the world is waxing worse and worse, most cultures around the world without Christ will only continue their imperfect approach to apply justice or replacing it with wickedness. But again, we'll never forget verse 15 in the last portion. For God seeks what is passed by. His ledger of detail regarding what is good and evil is as perfect as he is. He can chase down the detail of history because he inhabits history. Regardless of the decisions we have made based on our own assumptions of how God has handled our personal history or understanding, our understanding is imperfect and fallen and we still need to, as best we can, remember God's omniscience when it comes to his justice. God will remember the sin of the unredeemed. No sinner gets off scot-free under God's eternal justice. God demands perfection. And we're not perfect, none of us. Therefore, we need perfection. A perfection outside of ourselves, in our hearts, in order to be acceptable before God. And that only perfect Although perfection is found in a person, and that's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This church can't save you from judgment. Your good decisions can't save you from eternal judgment. And that detailed ledger of sin that God has for those who don't believe in Christ. No pastor, no priest, no Christian friend can save you from judgment. Only Jesus' perfection can, and you need that perfection in Judgment Day.
Even Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, be perfect as I am perfect. And you say, that's impossible. And he would say, yep, that's why you need me. That's why you need Jesus. He knew. He knew. You need your fallenness to be displaced by his righteousness. That's the only way. So simple, so powerful, so profound, but that's what we all need. For God, all of our deeds are on the table in his plain sight. And the wrath of God, as Paul told us in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, does abide upon the children of disobedience. So for the believer, why does this bring sanity to us? You know, when you've been forgiven in Jesus Christ, you've been humbly forgiven. You know your own brokenness and you know your own fallenness, and that's why you knew you needed him. But when you've walked with the Lord for a certain amount of time and you know a lot of the Bible and you look around and you see the things that still happen to you or are happening in the world, it does become puzzling. We really do believe that God's patience is too patient. We see that morally in our culture, socially in our culture. We see that politically in our culture. Certainly, we want to pick up our own arm of justice and lay down the law because God's just too slow. But Solomon's saying, don't do that. Life is a vapor. Justice is sure. And plain truth number four found in verses 18 to 21, we find out that man and even beasts have a couple things in common. They have a couple things in common. Certainly both are created. They're both finite. But just as chapter 2, verses 18 to 23, fully explain the difference between the righteous and the fool, so here the wicked and the righteous have the same end even as beasts, animals. They both are given a beginning and they both have an assured ending where they'll breathe their last and they're both going to return to the dust from which they came. So what? Why do we need to understand this plain truth? It's good for us to know as believers, not just that, but I really believe the, the, the example or the illustration of man being compared to beasts is simply given to us not only to show our created finite inability and our ultimate end in death, but to show us here, and Solomon had seen it in his own life, that man can actually live as brute as beasts do at times. So believer, don't be shocked. Don't be shocked when you see mankind, even as God's image bears, doing things that just beasts do. Recently, we had, and you may have seen it on Facebook, a, a little pack of coyotes in our backyard. Seven baby coyotes and two big coyotes. Well, you know from social media and lo- local written media that those animals pose a threat 
to little dogs, little pets, and other animals smaller than them. And certainly around our yard, we have found mauled and torn apart geese, skunks, and yesterday possibly even a deer that was limping through our backyard. Uh, we don't know, but its gut was falling out below it. It was still walking, struggling. Um, so apparently those animals may still be in the vicinity. I don't know. We haven't seen them for about a month. Why do I give that illustration? Not all animals are like that, right? I've never seen a robin maul a goose, right? You know, I've never seen my dog, Macy. She might pounce on a toad, but she's not going to maul and eat that toad. She's just the species that loves to dig for toads and rodents. What a pain in the neck that is to always clean her paws. She's always digging in the dirt, and she'll go a foot deep till she finds that dog on toad. But nonetheless, not all animals are like that. But certain animals, they are, aren't they? And they can't help themselves but be beastly like that. I remember being in South Africa on a little speaking trip a couple summers ago. You guys might remember I was down there. And the missionary took us on a tour of Kruger Park. And it's very rare in Kruger Park to see a leopard. So we were not expecting to see a leopard. We're on our way out the exit gate. We're about three miles from the exit gate. And the person driving our truck stopped and said, look, and up in the tree was a leopard, and its whole face was blood red, uh, hanging from the limb, or over the limb, uh, was the carcass of its evening prey, and it just looked up at us, licked its jaws, and went back to feasting on the flesh of its prey. That animal had chased down that deer, grabbed it by its neck, chomped it, broke its neck, kept it in its mouth, dragged it up the tree, laid it over the branch, and had dinner. Right? When I was looking at this text, and the reason why Solomon may have reminded us that, yeah, man can get pretty beastly, I thought about that. Man has gotten pretty beastly, haven't they? Much more violent is the beheading of an unborn child in the womb. Much more violent is the dismembering of one of God's creations in the tom tummy of a mom. Much more graphic. Much more graphic is the, the surgical maneuvers that are unnaturally performed on women wanting to become men and men wanting to become women who live with lifelong scars of the memory of how they tortured their body to become something God didn't create them to do or to be. Police shootings or the unwarranted shooting of a policeman at criminal look around our culture even those who are the most wealthy the most educated and the most polished citizens of our country have and are acting the most beastly 
states of Virginia, states of Illinois, among others, approving of the murdering and the infanticide of millions of babies. God chases into history, and he never forgets. He never forgets. All those beastly people need Jesus. And it's never too late for them to be forgiven while they breathe. But for those of you who are devastated and you're teetering on maintaining your spiritual sanity, just remember, God doesn't forget. And he inhabits eternity. And the reckoning is sure. To me, there's fewer things more graphically beastly than the sexual abuse of a child or the physical abuse of a husband on his wife. I don't even know how someone could say they know Jesus and express that dark, graphic, satanic violence upon a child or a woman. In my own soul, I fight back being very passionate right now. <laughs> All right, you've seen me be passionate. But two things I hate, I gutterly hate, is violence upon a woman or a child. God hates that. He doesn't forget. Why did it happen to you? There's probably at least 30 people in this room that I know of that have gone under severe sexual abuse as a child. If you feel you're alone, you're not. Quite a handful of ladies here that have been beaten to some degree by a husband or a boyfriend, fiance. We live in a fallen world. God doesn't forget. Why did he let it happen? In God's big scheme of things, only his grace will explain that to you in eternity. But I know this. Because of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, if you know Jesus, God has given you eternal grace in him to overcome and yet to be an example of help and comfort to somebody else who's endured the same affliction as you. Amen. And when you grasp the spiritual sanity of all this, my dear friend, you will know how abundantly freeing and joyful grace is that God allowed you to minister to that, that grace to somebody else only because you embrace that grace to help them. Three times we stayed together as a church family. We live in a fallen world. Last time we were together. That's not going to change until we see Jesus. We can't order joy on a menu like we said, and we can't order just 10 minutes of grief to a waiter, as we said last time. There are things that we can't control, and there are things we can control. But in the meantime, don't forget. Verse 15. Circle it. Underline it. Don't forget it. And as we close this morning in our final minute together, Let's go back and rehearse again in verse 22 that which we've already seen 
together in verses 12 and 13. And that which we've already seen as we closed out the first section of Ecclesiastes in chapter 2, verses 18 to 23. What are we to do in the meantime? I have seen that nothing is better than that man should be happy in his activities. And within the context, these are the activities of doing good things that we've rehearsed together. For that is your lot. Today, this is almost like a spiritual carpe diem. Seize this day for doing God's good things. And don't stop. Let it be your spiritual bench press every day. I am in Jesus. I identify with Jesus. When God looks at me, he no longer sees a broken, defiled soul. He sees his son. And based on who I am in Jesus, this is what I choose to do right here. Solomon says that's sanity. You're no longer living your life by what someone thinks of you or what someone has told you they think of you or anything. You're living your life based on who God thinks you are in Jesus and be abundantly free in that reality. Do good things, God's good things. Because if you really try to grasp everything and understand it all, you're not. But do what you can do. In Jesus, do what you can do. And find joy and peace there, okay? All right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. Certainly, Lord, these are some tall weeds to work through, but we trust we're doing so honestly according to your word. Lord, for those who know Jesus here, I pray their hearts are comforted. Those who know Jesus, who are discouraged and, and drowning in the sea of depression, I pray that they will understand supernatural grace, understand the character and nature of who you are and, and what's coming. Lord, for those who may be here this morning, and the wrath of God still abides upon them because they're still measuring out their lives with more good deeds than bad deeds. I pray that they would no longer measure their eternity or the eternal destination based on what they've done. But they would turn from their own self-worth and exclusively, individually, and totally surrender their will to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, that they might know peace and forgiveness and really know how to live life with joy in Him. For even Jesus said, I have come, life, come to give life and to give life more abundant. I pray today would be the day they come to know Jesus. Understand what divine relief in their soul really is in Him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.